Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Today we're continuing our series, Long Story Short. We've been in this series now. Uh, This is week nine, part nine, as we're taking a look at the grand story, Old Testament, New Testament, and linking together in a really short passion, just kind of really taking us through the entire thing. This morning, uh, I just want to start with this. How many know we live in an instant society? We live in an instant society. There's very little that we have to wait for. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember the days when uh, if there was some music that I liked, I had to go to the music store. I had to actually go to the music store and I had to find the, well, it, it started out when I, when I was younger was tapes. And I know for some of you, it was, it was records, right? The little ones, the big ones, the eight tracks, you know. Uh, for me, it was cassettes and then the cassettes became CDs, right? And we thought, man, there's nothing better than CDs. And now today it's digital. Right? Everything is digital. Thank you, Apple. Uh, everything is now digital. And, uh, and so now you don't even have to wait. Uh, you, want a, you want a song, you go right on, you, you click a button, it downloads, or if you, you, know, you really want it instantly. You sign up for a music service of some kind, Apple Music, Spotify, there's a whole bunch of them, Google Play, and you just play whatever song you want and download and, and you have it instantly. Instant. We don't wait for anything. You know, recently, uh, there were some things that my, my kids, and, and I'm going to have to pay them for this anytime I use them in an illustration, so they're going to hold me to it. Um, and I didn't even tell them I was doing this, so now I'm going to be really in trouble. But they were saving for something. They were saving. They, there was something they had their eye on, and, uh, and so uh, they began to save. They saved all their summer work, because they worked during the summer. They saved their summer work, birthday gifts, money. They'd say, I want money for my birthday. Any of you at that place for your kid, you know, your grandkids or kids? Yeah. Well, my, they save Christmas money, and, and they began to save until they finally got what they wanted. But what they wanted, they couldn't just go into the store and buy right away. It wasn't one of those things you could just download. It had to be ordered, and then there's a tracking number. Anybody do that? Amazon and all that kind of stuff. Now, how many of you, when that tracking number becomes almost like, a, you know, you got to keep pressing the button, the tracking, you're trying to follow the steps, where'd it go to, it went from this city to this city to this, and you're just waiting, right, with anticipation. There was so much saving, they were waiting with anticipation, and it was just really gratifying as, uh, as parents for Jamie and, and myself when we got to see them finally get what they had been waiting for and saving, because when you have to wait for something like that, you truly appreciate it all the more. And the joy is, is truly there. And I, and I share that because in this long story short, uh, what we are seeing and what we've been following are the Israelites, and the Israelites are waiting on a promise that God made. A promise that God made to them. It started all the way back in week one and week two when we were talking in Genesis, and we saw how Adam and Eve had failed. They had disobeyed God, but God made them a promise that one day there would be one that although the serpent would bite at the heel, there would be one day when the one who would be the seed of the woman would come and would do what? Crush the head of the serpent. 
All right, that was all the way back in the beginning. There was anticipation that God was going to right the wrong, that he was going to show up, that he was going to do something. And so we saw how God made covenant promises. And people throughout this long story have had to wait. Abraham and and his wife Sarah had to wait. They acted on a promise that God gave that there would be a great nation that would come from Abraham, a great nation that would be a blessing. There came a promise of land and a promise of of a great people. The problem was, as we know, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were past the age of childbearing, and they didn't have any children. They didn't have any heirs. How was God going to do that? And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. A promise that was made at 75 to Abraham, 65 at Sarah, was not fulfilled until Abraham was 100, and Sarah was 99, well past the age of childbearing. But God proved that he, he is the one who keeps his promises. And a son by the name of Isaac was born. And God made a promise of that they would be in the land and that they would be a nation, but the, but the problem was there was a great famine, and through circumstances, as we, as we saw, God aligned Joseph perfectly in Egypt and provided a place for them to come during a time of famine, and there they were living in the land of Egypt, and for 400 years they were there, but things turned ugly as they became slaves and a threat, as they began to become fruitful and multiply, as the incubation of Egypt created a great nation. And yet there they were enslaved. Had God forgotten his promise? His promise to Abraham, his promise to Isaac, his promise to Jacob? Had he forgotten the promise that they would be a nation but they would also have a land? God didn't forget his promise, did he? No, he raised up a deliverer in Moses. He called Moses when it seemed as if Moses may have failed. Moses wandering around as a shepherd for 40 years until God shows up in a burning bush and calls Moses. And Moses goes and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not. Let's make it harder for them. Had God forgotten his promise? No. In fact, God would be working to demonstrate his power. And plague after plague after plague, God demonstrated that he is God. That the gods that the Egyptians worshipped over and over again were no match for God Almighty, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in that final plague, we get a picture of what we know of as Passover. It was the death of the firstborn. It was a requirement of judgment, a requirement that God would require of all people unless they did one thing, unless they took a pure and a spotless lamb and they sacrificed that lamb and took the blood and put it over the doorpost. It's what we know of as Passover. And what we're going to find as we look ahead today and what we look ahead to this weekend is that that was a shadow of what was to come, a shadow of what Jesus Christ would do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's an exciting story, isn't it? But what did God do following that plague? God set his people free. He brought them to a place where he could demonstrate his power once again, parting of the Red Sea. They crossed over and their enemies were no more. Oh, but they didn't enter right away into the promised land. No, they stopped at a mountain, and there at Mount Sinai, God gave them his commands, and he said, you will be my people, and he stopped, and he made a covenant with his people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. 
And it was there that he didn't want them to have a king to rule over them. He wanted to be the one to rule over them. And he set forth laws with this family that had become a nation so that they would know how to have things in an orderly way. Not laws to be able to prevent their freedom, but laws to give them freedom and laws that would lead to life. And one of those, you shall not have any other gods before me. And then immediately Moses up for 40 40 days and they can't even 40 days serve the Lord. Once again, we see the human condition that it doesn't matter the deliverance out of Egypt. The human condition, the human sin continues to go after other idols, continues to try to look to satisfy the immediate rather than waiting on God. That's the human heart condition, isn't it? The human heart condition turns to reason when it seems as if God isn't showing up in the waiting and we have to wait a little too long. Where do our hearts go? Our hearts go to what can satisfy immediately. We see it throughout. So God is faithful. He brings his people there. But we know that the first set of spies, the first set of people with the exception of Caleb and Joshua said, no, the people are too big. We can't go in. Despite what God had just done in Egypt to their enemies who were more powerful, they still did not have faith that God could, 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 could really bring them into the land of promise and, and fulfill his covenant promise. So they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of waiting. 40 years of waiting. Waiting and waiting and waiting. But then God shows up, doesn't he? What does God do? God shows up. And he says under the leadership of Joshua, it's time to go in. They cross over the Jordan River again. The water's parting. They consecrate themselves. And God gives them victory over their enemies and gives them the land. And Joshua coming to the end of his days, he says, says, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was a day of decision. But long after Joshua had passed away, another generation rose up that neither remembered the Lord, remembered what he had done. And their hearts began to turn to idolatry. And once again, they they, they found themselves in a place of captivity. As God allowed other nations to come in and other nations to, to take over and they would cry out to God and God would raise up a deliverer and cycle after cycle after cycle of the judges. Stay with me because this is, I'm, I want you to follow the story because you need to get it, all right? I know I'm doing a lot of review, but stay with me. And finally they come to Samuel and they say to Samuel, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And God said, warn them, warn them what a king will do what, what a king will do to them. And Samuel's grieved. He said, they're rejecting me. And God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me as their king. So they cried out for a king. And, and, and Samuel raised up a guy by the name of Saul. But Saul disobeyed the Lord. And God took his hand and his anointing off of him and raised up a man after his own heart, a man by the name of David. And David was faithful, faithful to the Lord, faithful to the covenant. And there were times he wasn't perfect, but his heart was always drawn to repentance rather than to stand in his own righteousness or in his own position. He was more worried about not losing the presence of God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51, when he sinned than he was about guarding his position. 
And so what does God do? He, David wants to, build a, 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 he wants to build a temple. They had a tabernacle that was a tent. And he says, no, there, I, live in a, I live in a palace like this. I, 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 what, and my God lives in a tent? No, he wants to build a temple to his God. And Nathan the prophet first says yes, but then God says no. But in the no, God made a covenant promise with David. And this is the covenant promise. And this is foundational to where we will be today. Foundational to what we have on this Palm Sunday. Sunday, 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Isn't that an amazing promise? That's an amazing promise. So we have another covenant. The Old Testament is not just one covenant. It's a series of covenants. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Israel, now God's covenant with David. Covenant promises that God has made, and he says, I will fulfill. And he says, this is a covenant of a kingdom. There will be a king. You will never lack a king to sit on the throne from your family. How is God going to do that? We know that the descendants of David started to slip. Solomon had one foot in and one foot out. He worshiped the Lord, but then he married all these other, uh, all these other wives to, to help bring peace to the nations and, and as a way to be able to do that and as a, as a reason, their hearts turned his heart to idolatry. He built all kinds of things to other idols. One foot in and one foot out to the point where his son Rehoboam didn't even inquire of the Lord. Got him in trouble. As a result, the kingdom split. The northern tribes of Israel, 10 southern tribes of Judah. And yet it was in the tribes of Judah, there in the city of Jerusalem, near the town of Bethlehem, the city of David, that there was always a king in David's line. But not all of those kings served the Lord. The upper, the, the, the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah. Some were good, some not so good. And they would waver. Again, the same cycle. Serving God, not serving God. Serving God, not serving God. Trouble, Cry out to God, God delivers, wins battles. Awesome, God heals when you cry out to God. When you turn away from God, trouble, trouble, trouble. Have you ever found that in your own life with that cycle? When you serve God, you're under his protective wings. Not that you don't experience trouble, but you know that you're under his protective hand, yet you step out and you disobey the Lord. Cycle after cycle, and God allows some things to happen where it brings you back to a place where you cry out to God. Cycle after cycle. Why? Because the, the lamb, the, the sacrifices that they would do with a pure and spotless lamb, they didn't, they, didn't, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't take care of everything. They were temporary. They were a shadow of what's to come. And so here we have the, the nation of Israel. And they have, they have found themselves in captivity. And due to their disobedience, we talked about it. God allowed a nation there to come into Judah to break down the walls of, of Jerusalem, to break down and to, to completely destroy the temple and to carry back with them exiles. This was the Babylonian kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar. And he took the best of the best. And some of the ones that he took was a guy by the name of Daniel. We talked about Daniel. Daniel was one of these who, the, who was taken captive. But as we saw last week, God used Daniel. He used him to interpret dreams and to be elevated to a place of influence with a pagan king. Why? Because through it all, through all of the disobedience, through all of the dysfunction, how many of you know God is still in control? Because God has a purpose and God has a plan. So the Israelites in exile, and eventually they'd be released back 
to the land to live and yet still rule, be under the rule of another nation. So how was God going to fulfill his promise of a king to David? How would God fulfill this promise? We have seen over and over that God fulfills his promise. How would he do it this time? Well, it all points back and I, to, to this theme. And that's the theme that, that is for today. And I want to emphasize it. It's expectation. Expectation. That's the theme today. Expectation. And during that time, Israel was in exile in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And and we see it in Daniel chapter 2 right away. He has a dream. And that dream disturbs him. And he doesn't want just any what do you think kind of interpretation of that dream. Oh, let me listen to anybody. He wants to make sure that the interpretation that he gets is the correct interpretation. So he asks for something impossible. He says, I not only want those wise people who are around me, all the wise men and magi and everything, all all of you that are around me, I don't want you just to tell me what you think the dream means. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then give me the interpretation. And they say, that's impossible. We can't possibly do that. And he said, fine, you're all dead. That was the way it was. You're dead. You're dead. And Daniel said, give us more time because I know that my God can do this. And he began to pray and he went back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they had a little prayer meeting. And that night God gave him the interpret, gave him not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. And in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31, uh, Daniel begins to share the dream to the king that the king had. It was a large statue. The head was gold. The chest and arms were made of silver. The middle and the thighs were bronze. And the legs were of iron with feet mixed partly of iron and clay. But the most disturbing part of the dream, and that's the part I want to read, is found in verse 34 and 35. It says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What could that possibly mean? What could this dream possibly mean? Well, God gave Daniel the interpretation, and the statue represents four kingdoms, four kingdoms in sequence. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar represented the first kingdom. It was the head, the head of gold. But that kingdom would be taken over by a second kingdom, and that was the kingdom of Persia. Then Persia would be conquered by a third kingdom, and we know by history that Persia was conquered by Greece. And then the fourth kingdom would rise up, and that kingdom is Rome, and the stone then represents a yet a fifth kingdom, a fifth kingdom. And it says this in verse 44, in the times of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to one another, to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces, not by human hands. You couple this prophetic vision and the covenant that God made to David and to Israel in expecting a king. And furthermore, Daniel in chapter, Daniel chapter 7 has another vision. It's of, of a storm-tossed sea and four beasts that arise out of it. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a final beast that has teeth, iron teeth and horns. 
And the beasts once again represent four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the fifth represents the Messiah, the Son of Man. And in, David's, or in Daniel's book, he references him as the Son of Man. And that, if you read the Gospels, what you hear, who does Jesus refer to himself as? The Son of Man. We're connecting dots. Old Testament always feeds New Testament. If you really want to understand what's happening in the Gospels in the New Testament, you have to begin to understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament is a shadow and it's a prophetic and it's looking forward to what is coming in the New. And in this vision, the fifth represents the Messiah, the Son of Man, who's going to reign over the kingdom of God. Are you following me? Are you with me? You're not going to sleep on me. Somebody's going to sleep next to you, elbow them, say, wake up, pastor's got something important to share. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language, missions here, worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Why do I share this background with you? Because I want you to understand that the Israelites were living during this period of history. There was no king on the throne. There was no promise that had been fulfilled to them that a king in the line of David would be reigning. At this point, they're under the Babylonian captivity. Later, we see even in Daniel, Persia takes over, and, and there's the Persian kingdom. You read the book of Esther. It's all in the Persian kingdom, King Xerxes and all of that. There's the Persian kingdom, Nehemiah. The Persian kingdom is over them. And we know by history that here they are. They're living under the rule. And then you have the, the Greco-Persian wars and the rule of Greece. When Alexander the Great conquers far and wide from bringing east together with the west. And when he died, he was asked to name a successor. And he responded to this. He said, to the strongest and that led to four generals fighting it out, eventually down to two generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus from the north and the south. And this was far from a time of peace. And so you have Israel now living in the midst and under the rule of Greece, but there is civil war that is going on. They are caught in civil war. And although they suffer greatly during this period of time, God continues to build expectations by providing the nations of the world with greater access to his word. You see, under the rule of, 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 of in, in Greece, under Ptolemy II, he was somebody that valued great education. Greece was all about culture. It was all about learning. It was all about the philosophers and, 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 and learning and great learning and great libraries. And so Ptolemy II, how many know the hands of the king are in the, in, in, directed by the Lord, aren't they? Ptolemy II, here he is thinking, hey, you know what? This is a good idea. We have these, these Hebrew people, these Israelite people living here. They've got, they've got Hebrew scriptures. You know what? We need to make that available so everybody can read those and understand those. So we're going to translate them that into Greek. And so he issues this translation, and he has these 70 scribes that begin to translate, and it's called what we know of as the Septuagint. How many have ever heard the Septuagint? It was the first translation it was the first translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, and that was, again, made it available that the scriptures would then be available to not only those who spoke Hebrew, but also those who spoke Greek. God was doing what? Preparing the way. Preparing the way for himself. Preparing the way for the coming of his son. 
And in the midst of this 400-year period of history in which Israel had no king and they had no prophetic voice, although they continued under the rule and the conditions of other nations, God was preparing them for the fulfillment of a covenant promise. Eventually, the Romans came in, and the Romans began to conquer, and the Romans under General Pompey triumphed in military power. They invade Jerusalem, and once again, the people are under the rule of another nation, the fourth beast in Daniel's vision, with teeth of iron devouring and breaking into pieces. This fourth king was terrifying, and as terrifying as it was, it lends to greater expectation because those who study the Old Testament prophecies knew that God would soon fulfill his promise that a king would come, a king in the line of David, fulfill his covenant prophecy that a king would come and he would rule, and no longer would they be under the rule of any other nation. The Romans established a time of peace. Pax Romana, you could travel You could travel throughout the kingdom without threat. They also established a road system to prepare the way for the spread of the gospel. And although a painful time of 400 years under occupation of these other nations, God was preparing his people for the world and the world for the fulfillment of his plan. And you know what this parallels? This 400 years of silence parallels 400 years of Egypt and Israel, or Israel and Egypt. It parallels 400 years, 400 years. There they were as a family growing. Was God doing anything? Was God hearing their cry? They were under the oppression of Egypt. Here they are 400 years under all of these nations, Babylon, Persia, Greece, now Rome. Is God hearing their prayer? Is God going to fulfill his promise? What is God going? Is he he doing anything? I'm going to tell you something, friends. Although it may be painful in the silence, I can promise you this. God is purposeful and he is doing something in the midst of the silence. God is preparing something in the midst of the silence. If you are experiencing silence, but you have great expectation for what's to come, don't become disheartened. God is always working, even in the silence, even when we don't see, preparing things to usher in his plan. Expectations. Fast forward through the Roman Empire, and Augustus Caesar's on the throne. He appoints a tyrant king by the name of Herod to rule over Jerusalem and the Jews. Herod is a tyrant. He kills anybody that he thinks is a threat to his kingdom. He kills masses of people. He's a terrible, terrible king, but yet he's elevated by Caesar Augustus to rule over that area. One thing he does do that is good, by the hand of God, he rebuilds the temple. And as he rebuilds the temple, it opens up the way for temple worship to begin again for sacrifices and and those kind of things. And he restores that temple activity in life. The people have been waiting They've been anticipating a fifth king, the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. And there have been other prophecies that give signs to his coming, Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So now we fast forward to the time and the reign of Caesar Augustus, and we read this in Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, I'll skip verse 2 and read 3 and 4 as well. In those days, Caesar Augusta issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The hand of the king is directed by the Lord. Verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of who? David. David, how how was God going to do this? 
How was God going to raise up a king in the line of David? How, how was God going to do it? Friends, don't mistake it. God always has a plan. You may think it's impossible. You may look and go, I don't know how this can possibly happen. That's the best time because that means God is preparing a time for a miracle. A miracle. And that's what we see. Though 400 years of silence doesn't mean that God is inactive throughout the painful 400 years of waiting. God was setting up time to fulfill his covenant promise. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23, the parallel scripture to the Old Testament prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is that? If you've been here at Christmas, you know what that is. That is Jesus Christ, right? That is what Jesus, that is, that is a fulfillment. That is the Lord speaking with Joseph and saying, what is in Mary? Do not, do not despise that. That is from me, for I am setting this up. This is a fulfillment of what I have promised, expectation. Two prophecies out of 300. There are 300 possible prophecies. In fact, mathematics and, and, and astronomy professor Peter W. Stoner made this statement that just the chances of just eight, eight of the 300 prophecies coming into existence, coming true by sheer chance, is one in 10 to the 17th power. Let me give you this illustration. We're going to put a, the state of Texas up on the screen. The state of Texas. If you filled the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, you marked one with just a special marking, maybe an X or something like that. Then you put a blindfold around a man and, 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 and you push that man and you tell him to start walking. To start walking into, into, the, into these silver dollars two feet deep, to start walking. And, and he has one chance one chance to pick a silver dollar. And he's got to pick the right one, the one with the marking. He's blindfolded and he's walking all across the state of Texas, two feet deep, silver coins. And that is the chances of him picking out, the odds of him picking out that silver dollar, that's the chances of just eight of 300 prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. Just, just eight. Don't question whether Jesus came. He did. He did. It's no random person being his best self. This is the fulfillment of the Son of God showing up in the world. This is what everyone prayed for. This is the expectation. The expectation remained high. Jesus comes in a way that no one could have imagined, though. There was no pomp. There was no circumstance. There was no, hey, the king is here. Oh, no. There was no parade when the Messiah showed up. Jesus was born in a stable to a poor family. A poor family who happened to be living in a town called Nazareth in a region called Galilee to, to the point where a guy that was eventually became his disciple by the name of Nathaniel when he heard said, can anything good come from Nazareth? We thought the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem in the line of David. How was that to be? Oh, because God was setting things up in the midst of obscurity, in the midst of a, a poor family in a poor place. All of a sudden, God arranges for that family to go back to the hometown of Joseph, who is in what? He is in the lineage of the line of who? David. And God sets it up that he ends up going back to his hometown, which is where? Bethlehem. Jesus in a womb has no control over that. No control over those circumstances. And yet, although there are rumors of his birth, only shepherds and Gentile magi from the east 
and two other older people that when Jesus is brought eight days later in the temple to be dedicated, even recognize his arrival. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 records a proclamation from the Magi, and they declare who this Jesus is. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And as, I, as we pondered last week, could the magi of the east following the prophecies be those that had heard in generation after generation the stories of Daniel's prophecy, the stories that Daniel said, a fifth king is coming, a fifth king is coming. And they recognize and they say, where is the king? Where is the king? Where is the king? And nobody knows. They look through the prophecies and they say, well, it says in Bethlehem, it says there's a king. Is there a king? And and the Bible says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Why? Because Herod was bloodthirsty. The long-awaited king has come, the fulfillment of the promise, but he didn't come as people expected, and most people didn't recognize him. God's promise yet not embraced. God's promise had come, but God's promise yet not embraced because they did not recognize him. Similar to Israel, he is exiled to Egypt under the threat of Herod for a season and then returns to Israel. He's baptized in the Jordan River, then in the wilderness for 40 days, and that parallels the crossing of the Israelites from the wilderness through the Jordan River. Starting their earthly he begins to start his earthly ministry as they were being ready to take a hold of the promised land. Forty years in the wilderness, paralleling 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And when Jesus was 30 years old, he begins a public ministry where he does what a Messiah and a promised king would come to do. He demonstrates the kingdom. How does he do that? Through healings, casting out demons prophetic signs and wonders. Jesus acts with divine authority. He fulfills the promises of Scripture in Himself. He teaches about the kingdom in parables, inviting both the religious and the sinners to believe and receive forgiveness in Him. Jesus dines with sinners and outcasts, embodying this, that the kingdom is open to all who repent and believe. Expectations continue to build. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? And yet at the same time, the religious leaders not wanting to give over their authority to give way to the king continue to deny. No, that's not him. No, that's not him. Look at the way he acts on the Sabbath. Look at the way he does. That's not him. Denying sign after sign after sign. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they continue to come and they say, give us a sign. What what more do you need? Blind. And yet, though there are others who, could this be? Could this be? Three and a half years of public ministry come to a head when Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem in anticipation of the celebration of the Passover. And again, we talked about it in Egypt. What was it? It was the celebration of God delivering the children of Israel out of their captivity, out of their slavery, out of Egypt, doing what only he could do. In anticipation of that, Jesus begins uh, to, to make his way to Jerusalem. And again, that, that meal would be a lamb sacrificed and the blood atoned for the sin, sparing judgment, leading to redemption. And here we come in anticipation. And what happens just a, a, a little bit before, Jesus does something amazing more than anything else. He raises a guy by the name of Lazarus from the dead after being in a tomb for four days. 
being in the four days. And he raises him from the dead. Boy, you want to talk about a buzz? You want to talk about the buzz? And then he comes through and, and, he, and he meets with a sinner by the name of, of Zacchaeus on his way. And, and Zacchaeus' life has changed. And people are like, whoa, what is going on? A tax collector like this? He heals a, a blind man on the way. And there is anticipation that is building and building and building. Why? Because expectations are high. The fifth king, the promise, the covenant promise to David is about to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so what do they do? Jesus enters. He enters Jerusalem. He prepares the way. He's riding in on a colt. He's riding in on a donkey. Here he is. He's coming in, not not on a horse to rule. He's coming in in peace on the foal of a donkey, the colt, fulfilling another prophecy. Luke 19, 37 and 40, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he said, I tell you, if you keep quiet, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Man, an amazing time. The fulfillment of the promised king prophesied about in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Say your king comes righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's gospel declares the, the entry. He says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The king is finally here. The king is finally here. The promise is finally here. The kingdom has come, but it's not what they anticipated. Although there was all these expectations, Jesus did not behave in that week, in this week that we're looking forward to, as they had expected. He did not behave as they expected this coming king. The anticipation and the expectation wasn't what they thought, for he didn't come to to overrule and start a rebellion against Rome. He came to start a rebellion against the sinfulness of our hearts. (laughs) What would change? What would change? What would cause a crowd that on this day so many years ago to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to by Friday turn those chants of praise to crucify him, crucify him. What would change? Their expectations. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And Jesus has this to say as he approaches Jerusalem. See, he knows what's going on. Oh, they praise, but he knows what's coming. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the day will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and, and they will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He says, there's dark days ahead. There's dark days ahead. Why are those dark days ahead? Because you didn't recognize the time of his coming. They didn't recognize the time. They didn't recognize that he wasn't coming to deliver them from the Romans. He was coming to deliver them from their sins and judgment in hell. 
The final week would be one in which Jesus would not start a political uprising, but a spiritual one. He turns tables in the temple, confronting and corruption and, 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 that impeded the worship of God. He would face down religious leaders who were looking to trip him up with his words. And ultimately, the long-awaited king would give his life so that all men might gain life. And on that Thursday evening, Jesus gathered his disciples together in the upper room to celebrate Passover. <laughs> A shadow of what he was going to fulfill. But unlike previous Passovers, the king, Jesus, would give new meaning and usher in a new covenant. A new covenant. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Look at this, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'll not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. It's an illustration of what the king would do for you and I. His body would be broken. His blood poured out to atone for our sin. He would become the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Our redemption will be paid in full through his sacrifice and his obedience on the cross. During his trial, this is what we see, Luke 23, 1 to 3, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment taxes to Caesar. No, he doesn't. Claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. What are the charges? What are the charges? He's claiming to be a king. He's claiming to be a king. He's claiming to be a king. The charges against Jesus, he's claiming to be a king. More than that, he's claiming to be the Messiah, but we don't recognize it. He's claiming to be the Son of God, but we won't recognize it. We won't recognize it. We won't recognize it. Why? Because it didn't come in the package we expected. It didn't, he didn't come in the way we thought. He started to really impact the sin inside of our hearts, and that made us push back because we don't want to deal with the inside. We only want to deal with the outside. We want all the outside to be good. We want all the outside to be peaceful but we don't want him to deal with what's in our hearts we can amen but I'm going to tell you friends and I'm speaking to the church that oftentimes we don't let the king of kings and the lord of lords deal with the sin in our hearts we want him to fix all of the problems on the outside Make everything peaceful. Bless our job. Bless our family. Bless our marriage. Bless our children. Make everything good. Make us rich. Make us wealthy. Make us blessed. Make everything peaceful in our nation. And God says, that's not why I came. It's not why I came. And when he starts to deal with the inside, how do we react? It's one thing. To shout during worship and hear, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But when you walk out by your actions, are you saying crucify him? He wasn't beginning a rebellion. He wasn't in direct opposition to Rome. Pilate found no fault in him, and yet at the same time he caved to the demands of the crowd Jesus was beaten and his crown was not a, not a crown of gold or silver or gems. It was a crown of thorns. 
placed upon his head. And the charges against him on a placard above his head, they placed this written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, the long-awaited King, the one God promised to sit on the throne of David, our covenant-keeping God, crucified to save the ones he loves. They didn't recognize him because he didn't come as they expected. Oh, some did. He was crucified between two thieves, and one of them turns to Jesus, and this is what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know Jesus' response? This is a thief. This is a thief his entire life. He doesn't deserve anything. But this is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This is mercy. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this is hope. This is the gospel. This is the promise. Gospel of good news that Jesus gave his life, that we might have life. His death gives us life. Jesus fulfilled the promise of God. What does all this mean? On this Palm Sunday, what does all this mean? First, God is a promise keeper, keeping his covenant promise to Abraham, his covenant promise to Israel, his covenant promise to God, or to David, and he keeps his promise to us. What we also see is that many missed it because they were expecting something different. They were expecting a conquering king to overthrow the Romans, but instead he came to rule their hearts. And here's my challenge for you today. Are you missing Jesus because you haven't adjusted your expectations to what he wants to do in your life? Isn't it time to adjust our expectations and to welcome Jesus to be the king, the king over our hearts, the king over what's on the inside? Isn't it time to recognize King Jesus and let him sit on the throne of your heart? Let's bow our heads this morning. Worship team's going to come. I know we're a few minutes over, but I just really feel like, I really feel like we need to just ponder this for a moment. Can you just bow your heads with me? Is Jesus on the throne of your heart? Is Jesus on the throne of your heart? I know that life can throw at us some pretty terrible things. We can experience a lot of disappointments. We can experience a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. That's sin. Sin, our sin-filled world our, just creates a lot of brokenness. But Jesus has come to bring healing. Not necessarily to fix all of our outward circumstances, but to adjust and come in and fix what's wrong in our heart. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I need to let Jesus be king of my heart. I need to let Jesus come and be the king of my life. I need to let Jesus come and take the throne of my heart. If that's you this morning, whether it's the first time or whether you just need to repent and come back to the Lord, it's time to return and let the King take the throne of your heart. Will you slip up your hand this morning? I want to pray with you. I need to, I want to invite Jesus into my life. I want to make him King of my heart. I want to invite Jesus. I need to recommit my life to Jesus. I need to make sure that he is the King of my life. Is there anyone at all? You just indicate, up, raising up your hand, I need, I want to let Jesus be the king. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. And if you know Jesus, will you also just renew your commitment to letting Jesus be king? Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I thank you today that you love me and that you came 
to be the king in my heart. You came to heal on the inside. You came to set me free from sin. You came, Lord, to give hope. I invite you now into my heart. Become the king. Sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Wash me clean. Make me whole. Make me right with God. Oh, King of kings, come and sit on the throne of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just stand and just close again with worship this morning? And if you want to come and you need prayer this morning or you just want to reflect, maybe something in the Word, the Holy Spirit, and you just want to be moved to the altar, will you come and draw near to the Lord as we just take a few moments and worship Him before we leave today? Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's Word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.